turn with me to Isaiah. We're going to turn to Isaiah 57:15. We're going to be in Luke chapter 8, 13, and 14, so uh, you can pick where you want. As, as we turn there, uh, let's talk about medicine for a minute. Do you like to take pills? But do you like to be in pain? <laughs> you go, no, I don't like that either. Uh, you know, I don't like to, to take pills, I, 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 but I don't like to be in pain. I, I, I would most often, most of the time, I will choose not to take a pill because I'd rather know my pain. You know what I'm saying? So, so that I can understand how serious my pain is. Because there's pain where you go, yeah, it's just whatever it is. But, but for instance, if I'm going out to the woods to cut firewood, I, will, I know what the pain will be from, and so I will take my ibuprofen. I will take it before I leave, and I will take it again after. <laughs> because that's pain. It's not like I'm wondering, oh, what is this from? I need to know how bad it is. It's more like, that's just pain. I don't want to feel it. Free me from that pain, because I, I don't like to hurt. Uh, it's not fun. But you'll meet people sometimes who sometimes seem to take great pride in suffering, as if suffering is a badge of honor or, or something like that. And, and I figure if you have no choice but to hurt, you might as well bear under it well uh, and, and, and try not to, you know, wimp out into the pain. But if you have a choice, it's not, I don't think it's wrong to choose not to hurt. Okay? What's this got to do with anything? Well, some people choose to carry their guilt when they don't have to. Right? Sometimes people... Uh, just say, no, I'm not going to take this to Christ. I'm going to keep it. for, And, and they'll have their reasons. And we'll look at some of those before we're done here. Uh, and, and for whatever reason, they want to carry their guilt. They want to feel the guilt. They want to remind themselves of what they've done. Uh, they want to feel that uh, rather than have it taken away when Jesus Christ wants to take it away. He wants to take it away. In today's passage, we read this. Uh, this is the last half of Isaiah 57, 15. In order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Okay, now I'm going to read the whole one. This is what the, the whole verse. What the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, says, I dwell in a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. And we find he has a goal to revive our spirits and to revive our hearts, not to leave us in guilt, not to leave us crushed in guilt and shame and whatever, but to revive us. That's what he wants for us. So today we're going to look at that word revive. We're going to look at the example of the, tax, of the repentant tax collector, and then we're going to consider some reasons why a person might choose not to give up his guilt and why those reasons are bad reasons. Okay, so first of all, personal revival. That word, uh, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And the word is revive in my translation. Honestly, I didn't grab a half dozen Bibles and look up uh, what the word revive was used there. Uh, but I want to say this, uh, revive, revive means to bring back to life, right? Uh, and, and the first thing you need to know is you don't revive something that's alive, <laughs> <laughs> or maybe the word resuscitate comes to mind. Something dead can be re, uh, revived. Something, but well, I shouldn't say, I want to say it this way. Something near dead can be revived. You know, something near dead, because we talk about revival. You know, once upon a time, churches used to have a lot of revivals, a lot, or a lot of churches used to have revivals. I was at a church once that said, well, we don't do revivals, we do renewals. <laughs> okay, I said, what? Well, what's the difference between a revival and a renewal? Well, we just think renewal sounds more sophisticated. <laughs> go, okay. <laughs> but uh, revival, the idea is to bring new life back into the church, uh, meaning the church is way, it feels like it, it needs revival. And by the way, church, we, we need revival. 
and, and I'm not, but today I'm not preaching to the church. I'm preaching to individuals. I'm going to say, you may, you may need revival. Something near dead can, make, uh, can be revived. If you make a statue and bring it to life, that's not revival. That's simply bringing something to life, which, by the way, you can't do that. Satan's going to do that someday, apparently, but we'll see. Okay, the Hebrew word for revive, rather than go to all the possible English words, is, is, is I like this word, haya. Yeah. Anybody know Donut Man? Hiya, hiya. Lift Jesus. Hiya, hiya, hiya. <laughs> uh, that's, that's what it sounds like, as near as I can tell. Uh, hiya. Uh, and it means, li- it, it means revive, but it also means life. It means life to live, to restore to life. Those are the definitions we have for it. And we find this word in a couple of really cool stories uh, in, in the books of First and Second Kings. These are Elijah and Elisha stories. And, and when I say really cool stories, as soon as you start talking about Elijah or Elisha, you should say, oh, th- those are cool stories. Okay, so the first one is 1 Kings chapter 17. It can't be chapter 17. It must be chapter 19. Let me find it. Uh, chapter... 18? 18. <laughs> Chapter 18, verses 17 through 24. No, that's not right. Is it 17? Wow. Your preacher doesn't know his Bible so well. Okay, chapter 17, verses 17 through 24. Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick, and his condition became very grave, until at the end he was no longer breathing. So she said to Elijah, why? and by the way, Elijah had prophesied this child for them. They were childless, and he came in, and he said, next year at this time you'll have a son. And, and they hadn't basically given up on that that was going to happen to them. And then they have the son, and they're all full of joy. So now she's saying, why bother giving me a son if, if, if he's just going to be taken away? Uh, so she said to Elijah, why is my business any of yours, you man of God? Yet you have come to me to bring my wrongdoing to repentance and to put my son to death. But he said to her, give me your son. Then he took him up from her arms and carried him up to the upstairs room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. And he called to the Lord and said, Lord, my God, you have, have you also brought catastrophe upon the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out over the boy three times and called to the Lord and said, Lord, my God, Please let this boy's life return to him. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the boy returned to him, and he revived. Then Elijah took the boy down and brought him from the upstairs room to the house and gave him to his mother and said, See, your son is alive. Right? Uh, and, and that word, revive, when his life revived, is the same word revive that we have in Isaiah 57, verse 15. And he says to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Now we go to 2 Kings 13, it's not, Elijah's gone, he's gone up in his whirlwind, but Elisha is still down and running around. Actually, he's not, he's dead, but his bones are still there, which is all it takes, turns out. Uh, Isaiah, 2 Kings chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. And Elisha died, and they buried him. Now the marauding bands of the Moabites would invade the land in the spring of the year. And as they were burying a man, behold, they saw a marauding band, and they threw the man into the grave of Elisha. And when the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. Which is one of the funniest stories, because <laughs> I, I know I've acted this out, and I don't want to be too repetitive in the joy I have in these stories. But, but you know, so, so the guys are scared to death. They throw the body in Elisha's grave. Then the guy gets up. He sees the marauding bands. He, he's scared to death. He runs off. They see this body jump out of the grave. They're scared to death. They run off. <laughs> it's just, everybody's scared. But one guy has revived. And that word revived is the same word we find in Isaiah 15, verse, or chapter 57, verse 15, where he says, I dwell with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. 
it, it literally, revive means to bring back to life. What is completely dead or what is almost dead, what is only mostly dead, right? To revive is to bring that back to life. That's what revive means. It's what it means, that same word means that of physical life in other places, so it means it in spiritual life here. And that brings us to a really, really important lesson about what sin does to us. Because these people's faith, their spiritual life, is as good as dead. Uh, why? Because of the sin that has caused them to be contrite. Or that they are refusing to confess and wallowing in their contrition. You know, I want to say this. Sin does and doesn't kill us. Both, both things are true, right? The wages of sin is death, right? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. There's no arguing with that. Scripture teaches it. Uh, the, uh, the soul that sins, it shall die. That's in, the, uh, in Ezekiel. The person without Christ faces death. Uh, but with Christ, the second half of Romans 6.23 kicks in. Because the first half is the wages of sin is death. The second half is, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we have the, the both halves. Sin does kill us, but it doesn't necessarily kill us. Because if you have Christ, it doesn't kill you. You have the eternal life that, that he has given you. Without Christ we also face the second death, okay? Uh, and I want to talk about second death real quick because we're talking about revival and life and death. So Revelation chapter 20, the great white throne of God, judgment seat of God, we have death defined. And we have something called the second death. Revelation 20 verses... Uh, hmm, I'll... Thank you. <laughs> and I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in their books. I want to skip down to verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And so the Bible teaches both death and the second death. And, and the soul that sins, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. It's not merely talking about physical death. It's talking about spiritual death or eternal death, which is the lake of fire. And without Christ, we face that second death. But with Christ, we don't face that second death. With Christ, we face the first death, but not the second death. We all understand... Uh, excuse me, I want to get back to my place. The person with Christ... now. I want to, I'm, I'm hedging myself all over the place here. The person with Christ, understand this, the person with Christ can die because of their sin. Okay? Do not think God would, God would not do that. Do not think God would not kill you because the Bible says he will. Uh, 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. Uh, and John is, you know, the mushy guy, the all-emotional, his feelings on the sleeve kind of guy. That's, at least that's the way I think of John when I read his writings. Uh, he's the beloved disciple. But 1 John chapter 5, verse uh, 6 says this. Let's try verse 16. <laughs> i got to double-check my typing. If anyone sees his brother or sister committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I'm not saying he should ask about that. He says there's sin leading to death. And I don't believe he's talking about spiritual death. I believe he's talking about physical death. Why? Because of 1 Corinthians 11. And 
1 Corinthians 11 should be at least a little familiar if you've been around here very long because it's part of the passage we read pretty much every month for communion. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he describes people dying, right? For the one who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not properly recognize the body. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number are asleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. When we're judged, we're disciplined by the Lord, and so we won't be condemned by, with the world. And we have this description of those who are asleep. He's not saying they're sleeping, you know, that kind of thing. He's saying they are, they are dead, right? And so there is sin that leads to death. The wages of sin is death, but it's a physical death. Uh, but there's that other life that we don't have. Uh, the person with Christ does not face the second death. John 10, 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And both by the definition of eternal and the definition of never, <laughs> right, uh, we say, say they, they, they won't die. So we have this eternal life. Okay, all that to bring it back. Just because you don't have to fear an eternal life. It, I mean, I never want to assume everybody in here is saved, right? Uh, and I look around the room and I'm saying, oh, yeah, that one isn't. Because <laughs> I'm not doing that either. I don't look around here and say, any of you are likely not saved people. But I'm not going to vouch for your salvation. My vouching, my vouching doesn't mean anything anyway. Okay? So take these words seriously. You know, the, for, 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 my, for my purpose in this sermon, this is a minor point, <laughs> right? Moving forward with the, the overall message of revival and, and repenting of sin and getting rid of your guilt. The main purpose of this message is to get rid of your guilt, <laughs> right? But before we do that, if you have guilt that you can't get rid of, recognize this. Jesus is the only way to get rid of it. Right? And without him, you will die for your guilt. Because you cannot escape it. So, so make sure you have him. Okay? But let's come back, because that may be the most important thing you hear this lifetime. Um, but come back for the rest of us. Um, we may not have to fear death, uh, physical death. We may not have to fear spiritual death uh, to the sense of ultimate, ultimate dying. But we know what it means to need to be revived. You know, we, we know what it means to have our spirit quenched, to have quenched the spirit of God, to, to, to feel lifeless and dead in our faith, to feel useless and empty. Uh, we all understand what it means to need to be revived. Sometimes to just say, I have a lifeless faith. Sometimes to have lifeless prayers or, or pretty much no prayer life at all. And you go, what happened to me? I used to pray so well. What happened? And, and, and your prayer life needs revival. It needs new life. Or, 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 or your, your walk, or your, you used to feel like you read Scripture, and it was live, and it spoke to you, and you go, it's not doing that now. What happened to me? And the answer is nothing's happened to the Scripture. <laughs> and nothing's happened to the God who hears prayer. It has happened to you. And sin is likely a likely excuse. And apathy, by the way, I think is a sin. Sometimes we have nothing we could call a relationship with Christ. Sometimes we have a walk with Christ that is just exciting and rewarding and fulfilling, and sometimes we might feel uh, like, like uh, there's nothing there. I'm, I'm walking with a cardboard cutout of Jesus, and, and that's all I have. And I want to tell you, that's what unconfessed sin causes, and that's what contrition fixes. Right? Unconfessed sin moves us away from God farther and farther. And repentance for our sin, feeling sorry for our sin. And if it's a kind of sin where you feel that kind of guilt that we call contrition, then, then we have the opportunity to be revived. That's the kind of 
Contrition allows Jesus to, to, to revive you, right? Go back to Isaiah 57. I also dwell with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. It's like he's up there looking for somebody to be contrite so that he can come down and fix them. Until they're willing to say they need to be fixed, he, he's, he can't do anything with them, right? He needs to have them ready to listen. We need to have them ready to answer. God did not create us to walk around in defeat. And God takes no joy in it when we do. Uh, that, that's nothing that blesses him. That's not what he wants from us, right? What is the spirit, fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit, we'll probably be singing it in about three weeks. <laughs> so I'm not going to start with it now. But love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Love, joy, right? If that's the fruit of the Spirit, if that's the natural outpouring of the Spirit in your life, then that's what God created us to be like. God created us to demonstrate love, to feel joy, to have patience, love, joy, peace, peace, peace. How do you go, oh, peace? That sounds so good. Not the hippie peace. <laughs> you know. Peace, real peace. Oh, that sounds so good. Love, joy, peace, patience. <laughs> That's the one I hate. <laughs> I get in trouble with that one all the time. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those are the natural outflowings of God in our life. That's what he wants our relationship with him to be like. He doesn't want us to walk around gloomy and defeated and depressed and, and, and feeling bad all the time. He comes to dwell with the contrite, but he doesn't want us to always be contrite. The contrite contrition allows him to revive us and give us back the life that he wants us to have. That's, that's what it is for. Gloom, despair, and guilt are not fruits of the Spirit. They're just not in the list. They never will be in the list. It's, it, 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 is, it is something that can bring us to him, but it's not what he wants of us. Confession allows God to revive us and give us the life he wants us to have. So let's look at the example of this, this repentant tax collector in Luke chapter 18. All right. We have this tax collector. We'll start, start, I'll start at verse 10, and we have both men, the Pharisee and the, and the tax collector. Luke chapter 18, starting at verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and began praying this in regard to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people, swindlers, crooked, adulterous, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to raise his eyes toward heaven, but was beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And the first thing we see is his conviction. It, 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 I mean, there are things we can't know. Jesus, this is not a true story. It's a parable, which means it could be a true story. All parables could be true, but he, he puts together pieces and makes it up to tell his, make his purpose across. So it's, it's truthful, but not a true story. And in this story, he had the, Pharisee, or the tax collector standing some ways off. And, and I wonder why was that? And you know what I thought of as, you know, sometimes physical examples give us spiritual insight. I'm thinking, what, why would I stand some ways off? You know what? If I knew I had B.O., <laughs> I might distance myself from people that I knew that would offend. I mean, depending on the people. Other people I might deliberately walk up to. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's like I could, that, that would be a physical illustration of what I think is a spiritual truth. 
he did not feel worthy to be near. Because the, the tax collector doesn't know this Pharisee's what he's praying. But he sees the Pharisee as a religious person, as a spiritual guy, and he doesn't feel worthy to be with him. Turns out the tax collector is far head and shoulders above where the Pharisee is, but, but he doesn't feel that. He doesn't feel worthy to be in the presence of these people like this because he knows his guilt. So he stood a ways off. And then he began beating himself on the chest, which, you know, I think of, oh, you know. But it was a serious sign of contrition. It was a sign of guilt, of shame. Uh, it's a sign of sorrow. And he describes himself. Um, the tax collector, standing some distance away, was unwilling to raise his eyes toward heaven. Oh, unwilling to raise his eyes toward heaven. He couldn't bear to look up because he was so shamed. So ashamed he couldn't, couldn't lift his eyes. Because sometimes you don't want to make eye contact because you feel ashamed enough already and you feel like that eye contact would destroy you. And so he's, 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 he's standing off, not raising his hand. He's beating his chest. This is the sign of sincere sorrow. And then he says, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Now you may look in your Bible and you may say, yours may say, a sinner. And I don't know why your Bible says a sinner, because the Greek is not hard to understand on this. Even I can make it out, and it's the sinner. He doesn't describe himself as a sinner. He describes himself as the sinner, which is just a powerful, powerful thing to say. He's in the temple, and he looks around. He says, I'm, I'm the sinner, right? He, he, is, he is totally aware of how bad he is. He's not thinking of other people. He's not thinking of how they compare with him. He, or if he is, he's just, like I say, he won't lift his eyes. He goes off away. He doesn't see himself as good enough to be with anyone else because he is the sinner. That one. He owns the title. He, by owning, I'm not saying that we would all give him the title, but he gave himself the title. He owns it. And what we see through here is his conviction. This guy is utterly convicted of his sin and utterly contrite. But you know what we understand, or what we should understand about this, is that this was a one-time thing. I mean, presumably, he didn't go back the next day and repeat the same thing. And the next day, and repeat the same thing. And the next day, and repeat the same thing. Why? Because what does Jesus say? He went home justified. Right? He went home justified because of what he did. No, because God wants to revive the heart of the contrite and revive the spirit of the lonely, lowly, <laughs> who may be lonely, right? He took it, and he left justified. Look at verse 14. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be what? Exalted? The one who humbles himself will be, this guy went home exalted? How can that possibly be? He was a different man. He was not the same man that walked in there. This was a one-time thing. He's still lowly, meaning humble in heart, but he's not contrite anymore because God dwells with the lowly in spirit and the lowly in heart to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the, heart of the, the spirit of the contrite and the heart of the contrite. He wants to give them life and bring them back to where God intends us to be, which is in this, this lively exalt. I, I hate... I, 
exalted is just too much of a, I can't handle that word. It's too much for me. <laughs> uh, but that's the word the Bible uses. And I can't, I can't tell God to change it, so I'm more comfortable with it. <laughs> Conviction is the guilt that crushes and breaks us. And Jesus is the Redeemer who restores and revives us. And once Jesus does that, the conviction is gone. It's not that we no longer think we did a bad thing. It's not that we no longer know what we did was wrong. It's that we know that we have been revived. And, and, and that's why, why horrible sinners can praise Jesus Christ. When I say horrible, I don't mean as they're sinning. <laughs> but horrible people who have done horrible things and have been saved sometimes praise God better than all the rest of us, you know, because they know that from which they've been saved. And those of us with little sins, you know, he who has been forgiven much uh, loves much. And he who has been given, forgiven little loves little. And too many of us uh, make too little of our sins. It may not be as small as we think. And so we don't love enough. We, once Jesus does that, once Jesus takes the conviction away, we're free. We're restored. We don't walk in that condition anymore. So what did the tax collector do after this? What did the tax collector do when he went away? You know, Jesus never gives us a part two. I want part two. I want to see what happened the next day or what happened when he got home, right? Imagine this tax collector when he got home. Honey, I want to tell you what happened at the temple today. And his wife looks at him and says, you went where? Because <laughs> she, she did not see this coming, right? Uh, it's funny. I, I, I know I've, I've, I talk, keep talking about these books that, from Andy and Margot that we've read. And, and uh, the, the, you, you will read this story. And as the story goes on, this Muslim man, and these are all true stories, this Muslim man will, will come to faith in Christ, and he'll come home, and he'll tell his wife and found out she's been praying for him for the last six months. <laughs> Yeah, I knew. I, I've been praying for that. She's not surprised, but, but sometimes it doesn't work out that well, right? Um, this tax collector, how did he change? He may have quit his job. I mean, after all, tax collector was a despised job. You were considered a traitor. You were working for the Romans, collecting taxes against your own people. It was a despised job. He may have quit his job, but you know, he might not have. Because after all, someone is going to be tax collector. Why not a godly tax collector who is honest in what he does, who does not extort people, who does not take an unfair share, who, who does his best to help people rather than to hurt them, and he's a tax collector on their side? Because that could happen. There's nothing contradictory about that. As a child growing up, and, 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 and I don't know if I'm the only one like this, I always, felt, I always thought the teachers were against me. I thought it was students versus teachers, right? Because I'm trying to get a good grade, and they're trying to give me a bad grade. I had this, this adversarial mindset. I grew up with this my whole life. I don't know what point that finally changed. But now I'm a teacher, and while some of my students here may say I don't see it, I'm actually not against them. I'm, I'm, you ready for, I'm for them. <laughs> it's, it's not an adversarial thing. It is a, a supportive kind of thing. Uh, this guy, if you can have a supportive tax collector. You can have a good tax collector. It, it, it's possible, and it'd be better so. But, but at the same time, he may have said, you know, I need, I need to change my job. I need, he may have said, I need a clean break. I need to do something else. I'm going to go dig ditches because I just can't do this anymore. Maybe he did. 
Uh, maybe he did change his job and everything else. But what, what do we know would change for him? Well, presumably he doesn't lie or cheat or steal anymore because we're presuming he must have because otherwise he wouldn't have felt so guilty. Uh, we're presuming that if he stayed as a tax collector, he was an honest tax collector. If he left the job, he did other honest work. Presumably, after this conviction and restoration, he's a better man. I say presumably because we know life doesn't always work out the way we think it should. And life isn't always neat and tidy. But that's what we assume goes on for this guy. He was better for having been re restored, for revived. Okay, so let's go back. And I, I said we we're going to talk about reasons why people might say, no, no, I'm going to keep my guilt. Okay, number one, simply, oh, I, oh this, I, I have my title here, The Sins Jesus Takes Away. Number one, when we feel strong guilt. We have done something, and our conscience is working us over. It's working over us over time. I did it. My sin was always before me, and I can't escape it. And, and uh, I have that guilt. This one isn't so much a reason we don't. Uh, this one is the easy one. We take it to God, and we pour it out our heart, and he forgives us. And, and we are restored from the guilt of our sin. The guilt of our sin is gone. We are restored. He has fixed us. He has made us right. We were contrite, and he fixed it, and we're not. So there's the strong guilt. But number two, the, the sin we ignore with a cold conscience. Cold conscience, you know? The, the conscience that you, the first time you did it, it felt wrong, and you didn't like it. And your conscience bothered you. And, and you knew you should go and confess. You knew you should stop, but you chose not to. And then you did it again, and your conscience bothered you a little bit less. And then you did it again, and your conscience bothered you a little bit less. And, and before long, you think your conscience doesn't haunt you anymore. Uh, you, you do it, and you do it without thinking, and you do it without feeling guilt. You do it without remorse, and you think your conscience doesn't bother you anymore. We've learned to ignore it. We get so good at ignoring it that we think that it's gone. And then something happens someday, and there it is staring you in the face. And all of a sudden, you're feeling this horrible guilt over something that you have been refusing to repent of for years. I, I did a little Google search. It was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Some things, you know, you find more easily, and some you find more hard, more with more difficulty. But, but I was looking for people who confess to crimes after a large amount of time. And and specifically, I was looking for what moves them to do it. And usually, something big happened in their life that brought them to terms or brought them to see what they did or the harm in what they did, or their guilt. A big one is getting notice that you're going to die. Now, I once had a man in his 80s confess to me that he raped his sister when he was a teenager. And he'd been walking around with that guilt for 70 years, 60 years, uh, 70 years, yeah. He'd been walking around with that guilt for 70 years. And all of a sudden, he knew he was about to die. And he said, I need to make this right. He can't make it right. He can't undo it. But he felt the need to confess, so he calls the pastor. <laughs> Who do I know in town that's a pastor? I'll call this guy. And I looked at him. I said, you know, I'm not a Catholic. I don't <laughs> absolve sins. 
He says, I don't, I don't care. I need to confess. I said, well, who you need to confess to is God. He says, look, I need to confess. He needed to get it off his chest or off his conscience. He, needed to, he knew he was going to die, and he, he realized he needed to make it right. And I honestly don't know where the man is today or not, but, but his sin that he had ignored and put away for 70 years came back and smacked him in the face. Jesus takes away the guilt of that sin, too. You go, wow, Jesus shouldn't do that. <laughs> we want him to wallow in his sin. That's what he could have said. But he didn't. Jesus takes away the pain and the guilt of that sin, too. When you are contrite, when you come to him in confession. So, so we have just the, the sin we've, we are feeling guilty of already. We have the sin we ignore with that cold, callous conscience. We have the besetting sin. This one gets a little harder, the besetting sin. This is sometimes what we call addictions, especially today when you can be addicted to anything. But it's the sin you hate the most that will not go away. And you find yourself doing it again. And that sin seems stronger than you. For some reason, I cannot defeat this sin. It is stronger than me. I don't know what to do about it. And this is the sin talked about in Romans chapter 7. I love Romans chapter 7. It is so human. Romans chapter 7, I've got verses 15 through 24 here. For I do not understand what I am doing. For I am not practicing what I want to do. Right? Jafar, I can stop right there. <laughs> I don't understand what I'm doing because I'm not doing what I want to do. Sin that dwell, it is, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that good does not dwell in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I do the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present within me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully agree with the law of the God in the inner person, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin, the law which is in my, in my, in my body, body's parts. Wretched man that I am, who will free me from this body of death? The besetting sin, the sin that you just you don't know why you can't get rid of it why it won't go away, why you find yourself doing it again and again and again. Here's, here's number one. When the sin is stronger, fight harder. Okay? That's, that's, but that's not the point we're getting to. I just want to throw that out at you. Yeah, the sin can be strong. The temptation can be strong. The battle can be fierce. Well, what do you do? Give up and run away? You can't run from this one. It's a besetting sin. It is, it is the one that will haunt you. So go ahead and fight back harder and fight back smarter. It's fighting back smarter is hiding behind your Savior. <laughs> you know, don't get into the situation. If your besetting sin is drink, stay away from the bar. Right? If your setting sin is foul language, don't go to places, don't watch movies with foul language, don't read books with foul language. As much as you can, stay away from people with foul language. Right? Whatever your besetting sin is, and you can just go down the list, and I don't want to do it because it's all icky. But you don't, and, and, and you don't quit fighting because you fail. You get knocked down, you get back up. Right? Proverbs. Uh, where did I write this down? 
Proverbs 24, 16, For the righteous person falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in the time of disaster. And it's almost like the definition of the righteous person is the one who gets back up after he falls. Right? Uh, you, don't, you don't, oh, I fell. Bummer, dude. <laughs> that sin hits hard. No, the righteous person gets back up. And he gets knocked down again, and he gets back up again. And he gets knocked down again, and he gets back up again. And he gets knocked down again, and he gets back up again. He does not stop giving up. That's getting up. And we're not talking about in a fist fight. We're not talking about you know, rest, fighting some big muscle-bound guy. We're talking about the sin that you struggle with. And you will eventually win that fight. The righteous person isn't the one who never falls, but the one who gets back up and keeps on trying. But I want to get back to Jesus. Jesus takes away the guilt of that sin too. And we want to argue with that. We say, he, how can he take it away when I just keep doing it? The answer is, you just keep doing it now. The story is not over. You keep fighting, and you will defeat that sin. Okay? But Romans chapter 7, we read through verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? It's not a rhetorical question without no answer, because the answer is in the next, next line. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He does set us free from that wretched body of death. He does free us. He does give us the victory. He comes to revive the spirit of the contrite and the spirit of the lowly. So you come to him with that besetting sin that you're afraid that you, if you go through the trouble of going to him, it's not going to do any good because you're going to do it again. Go to him anyway. He does not say, oh, it's you again. Anybody else ever afraid to go to Jesus and say, <laughs> confess the same sin again? Don't be. Don't be. Don't go to him lightly. Don't keep doing the sin. But don't be. And then, so we've got, we've got the sin that we feel guilty of, the sin we've got our calloused heart about. We've got this besetting sin. And here's the last one in my list, the sin you don't want to let him take away. This thing you did was so bad that you know you need to be punished and, and you deserve to suffer and you will not let him take away from you the privilege of suffering. That's a real thing. I deserve to suffer and I, I'm going to punish myself and I'm not going to minimize my suffering because I did bad. I'm not going to pretend you didn't do bad. You're right that it's bad. You're right that you deserve to suffer. Okay, we're agreed. <laughs> but here's the thing. No matter how much you suffer, first of all, you're not suffering enough. That's a problem. <laughs> you're, you're, not, you're, you're not suffering enough to do anything. Second, you can't undo what you did. Third, you can't pay the price in full. How is your hurting yourself going to help somebody else? Imagine, imagine you are working in the shop, and in your right hand, you've got a sawzall. For some reason, you're using your sawzall one-handed. You're a brute, and you can just hold that thing at the end. And, you know, and you're doing this, and you're cutting something, and you go, whoop, oh! <laughs> you know? Oh, that's not fair. I need to make it fair. Somehow, you hook that thing up to your left hand and chop off your right to make it fair. Does that make anything better? My mom used to say you'd cut your nose off to spite your face. <laughs> Never did either one, but uh, hurting yourself doesn't make anything better. Hurting yourself does not undo the damage done. Hurting yourself is, is, is of no good in any way. Suffering for the sake of suffering accomplishes nothing, and guilt for the sake of guilt accomplishes nothing. It's useless. 
But Jesus will take away that sin too. You say, but I deserve, get over it. Get over it. Yes, you deserve to suffer. Guess what? So do I. Right? But you know, I'll take ibuprofen when I, when I come down from the woods because that suffering isn't going to help me at all. Jesus will take away the guilt of that sin too. You know what? I will tell you this. It is good to feel guilty when you've done wrong. That's good. You should. Contrition, serious sorrow for your sin is a good thing. But when it has served its purpose and, and driven you to Christ, when you confess and are forgiven, accept his forgiveness and be restored. You have nothing to gain and nothing to prove. But you have a God who loves you and wants... He died to take that guilt away. He died a horrible, torturous death to take that guilt away. He's not saying it's not bad. He's saying, I, I care enough. I love you in spite of what you've done. I want to take that away. Give your guilt to Christ. He will take it. Not only will he take it, it's not like you're going to add to his suffering by doing that. You know, the, the, there's a difference between, you, you say, well, no, I, I, he, I, he, he shouldn't pay for mine. He already paid for it. When you come to him and seek forgiveness, you're saying, you're saying uh, you, you, you help him to see that his suffering was worth it. If his suffering accomplished nothing, what, what good was it? But if his suffering accomplishes your salvation and your restoration, then it is a value. See what I'm saying? Uh, acknowledge that to him. Acknowledge your guilt to him. Father God, Lord God, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you take away our guilt. Lord Jesus, if there is any one person or maybe even several people here today struggling with that question of, of handing to you the guilt that they have carried around and for one reason or another they have not given it to you, Father, move in their hearts, move in their spirits, that they will. That they will seek you, that they will find the forgiveness that you give. Let them walk away free. I pray in Jesus' name.